Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze connects readers and writers in the age of COVID and beyond, and we're thrilled to offer you interviews with writers from every background, in fiction and in nonfiction. I think I'm especially well-suited to introduce today's guest, Anna Quinlan, because I happen to be her absolute biggest fan. I remember reading her novel, Black and Blue, while I was working at a women's shelter, and I can tell you that book was a spot-on, scarily accurate, and heart-wrenching portrait of domestic violence. Her book, Lots of Candles, Plenty of Cake, has a prominent place on my bookshelf, along with all of her other tremendous novels and memoirs. And it seems I'm not alone, based on the millions and millions of readers out there who have enjoyed her writing. One of those fans is a Mighty Blaze co-founder and best-selling author, Jenna Blum, who interviewed Ms. Quinlan about her pandemic experiences, her connection with her readers, and her indelible effect on the literary landscape. So settle in and enjoy the brilliance as I pass the blaze torch to Jenna and today's very special guest, Anna Quinlan. I'm Jenna Blum. I am the co-founder of A Mighty Blaze, and I am here today with Anna Quinlan, um, fangirling on Anna for the past 15 minutes. She needs no introduction, as they say, but I'm going to introduce Anna anyway, just so that we can all glory in the wonderful things that she has done for the literary world. Anna is a Pulitzer Prize winner, a number one New York Times bestselling novelist, a memoirist, a columnist for the New York Times, and Newsweek. See, I did all that just from my brain without even reading your bio, Anna. Um, the author of many of my favorite, favorite novels, which I hope we get to talk about. But I'm gonna read your, your official bio. Um, Anna Quinlan is a novelist and journalist, as I said, whose work has appeared on fiction, nonfiction, and self-help bestseller lists. You are the author of nine novels, among them Object Lessons, One True Thing, which I read and watched at least a jillion times in each chapter of my life. Black and Blue, Friend Benedetto for the win. Um, Rise and Shine, Every Last One, Still Life with Breadcrumbs, which I was just fangirling about, Miller's Valley and Alternate Side, which I also, as somebody born in Manhattan, absolutely love. Anna's memoir, Lots of Candles, Plenty of Cake, published in 2012, is the New York Times number one bestseller. Your book, A Short Guide to a Happy Life, has sold more than a million copies. That has to feel yummy. It does. <laughs> well, I would like to spill some tea about all of this success. While you were a columnist at the New York Times, you won, you know, the Pulitzer, which I also, as an aspirant, would love to hear about, and published two collections, Living Out Loud and Thinking Out Loud. Your Newsweek columns were collected in Loud and Clear, and you are the author of your latest, it's an essay collection, yes, or a, a column collection called Nanaville, which is featured right next to Anna right now. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for giving us your time today. We're so, so happy you can be here. I was telling Anna before we jumped on, my phone has blown up all day with people wishing me good luck on this interview because they love Anna Quinlan so much as I do um, with the effect that it made me extremely nervous and I had to drink a lot of coffee. So now I'm gonna talk really, really quickly and ask really fast questions. Um, <laughs> I guess, I mean, one of the first questions I always have when I read the incredibly illustrious bios of our guests is this sort of like 
echo effect that I have sometimes when I'm being introduced and then I think I have to live up to that. Do you ever, when you hear yourself being introduced, think, who is that? Or are you at a stage where you feel like I own this incredible body of work I've done? Oh, I, I don't know if anybody ever feels that way. Although someone said to me the other day, I wish more men had imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, um, when, when my kids were young, and I would come downstairs and I would be wearing um, a nice dress and heels and have makeup on. Um, my eldest would say, it's the amazing Anna Quinlan doll. Because <laughs> it was a completely different version of real life. Um, this, this thing that was going to go out to give a speech or promote a book or that sort of thing. And when I hear my own bio it sounds to me like it belongs to the amazing Anna Quinlan doll. I mean, let me bracket this a little bit for you. Um, before I came on here, um, I loaded the dishwasher and ran through the washing machine, this tablet that one of my friends told me I needed to clean my washing machine. This seems really bizarre to me, but I bought into it. And when I'm done, talking to you. I am going to make Bisquick chicken, sweet potato fries, and salad because it's my turn in the house to make dinner and everybody's here to have dinner. So the sort of glamorous bio life seems to belong to somebody who drops in every now and then by parachute and then leaves again. <laughs> I have that. I'm so relieved you said that because on the way to where I'm sitting right now, I picked up a pair of socks that the dog had been eating my puppy um, and also a small unidentifiable dead creature that he had brought into the house. So, and probably when I'm done with this, I'm going to go look for more small unidentifiable dead creatures. So there is this sort of disconnect between, I think, the writing life, which is so internal, and then that public life, which is the doll life that's so external. I personally would drive over an old lady in the pre-COVID days to get to a microphone. Do you like being the Anna Quinlan doll? Like, is it fun to get out and meet readers and put on the lipstick? And thank you for giving me a reason to put on lipstick today, by the way. I, I really like meeting readers. That's the thing that I like about book tour. I always dread book tour. They send me the schedule and it's 12 cities and, you know, this radio show and, and that public appearance and, and my heart sinks. And then I get out there and I meet readers and, you know, if, if you're not humbled by actual human beings who have purchased your book and read it, then there's something deeply wrong with your character. So that part of it always really speaks to me at the same time that, um, I, I don't love it so much. I mean, I, I like living two different lives. One is the life I live in a book where I go to the place where I write and I sit down at the computer for two hours and I'm in a completely different place doing completely different things with people no one else knows exists, but that are very real to me. And then I have the life where I'm with my kids and I'm with my grandkids and I go walking every morning with my girlfriends. And um, I really like that life too. And that, that thing in between where I go out into the world to, to be Anna Quinlan um, it is, is not entirely pleasurable to me, except for those moments when I can really connect with a reader.
Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's like the writer kaleidoscope, or I guess the writer wheel of fortune in a way, like those times always come back around when you're going to go back out, but then you always have to go back in and put on the yoga pants and sit down with the imaginary people. Do you have one, I guess I'm living vicariously now since I can't tour for a while, do you have one or two reader connection moments that really surprised you, that stuck with you? I've had so many. I mean, one of the best things about meeting readers for me is that they always tell me things about what I've done that I didn't realize. I, I mean, I remember meeting, you know, I was, I was um, promoting my second novel, One True Thing. And, you know, obviously a lot of people approached me because of their own relationships with their mother and, and experiences they'd had with terminal illness, that sort of thing. And then one woman came up to me, um, I can't remember where we are. And she said to me, okay, so you know that this is a metaphor for the dialectic of the feminist movement, right? And I went, dude, you're right. Oh my God, the thesis of woman is wife and mother, the, the, the antithesis of woman rejecting all that, and the synthesis of one from column A and one from column B. And she said, she said, well, of, of course, of, of course. And I said, okay, I didn't realize that until this moment. <laughs> she, and she looked at me in such a peculiar fashion. And I just walked away thinking, you know, the problem when you're writing a novel, if you're doing it right, is that you're so in it that it's not only that you can't see the forest for the trees, you can't see the trees. I mean, people could say to you, oh, that, and you, you're like, what, huh? Um, and in a way, that's a gift because that's what makes the book real. If you're, if you're that invested in it, that's what makes the characters come to life. That's what makes the situation seem real. But sometimes there's unconscious or subconscious theme material developing that you either don't realize until after the fact, or sometimes you don't realize until somebody else really smart reads a book and tells you about it. You're much more humble than I am because in those moments when readers told me that I inadvertently did some magic thing, I always say, thanks, I'm so glad you picked up on that. And then I go back to my hotel room and think, oh my God. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a good game face. <laughs> wow, thanks. Um, yeah, it is a, it's such an interior thing. I think of writing as being a virtual reality game within another character's skin and you go through that sort of Alice in Wonderland wormhole into another person's personality. So yes, your face is pressed right up against that experience. I'm not thinking about giant themes when I sit down to write. I know what things are about, but I'm not like, I intend to inspire the, the female dialectic. But I was just extolling the virtues of one true thing actually at breakfast this morning when I was running through like all, I, I had this conversation with a friend the other day who I think is watching, um, who runs the Sanibel, Writers, uh, Sanibel Island Writers Conference. And he was like, you get to talk to Anna Quinlan. I said, yes. And let me tell you about my favorite book of hers. And then I ran down all of the books because I love all of the novels. Um, and I was thinking about one true thing. Each one means a different thing to me in my life. And one true thing I have, have read and watched in every chapter of my life. And I read it for the last time when my mom was sick, which you must hear all the time. Um, and in my twenties, the book was The Feminist Dialectic. So I was like, oh, of course, 
I was raised to be a feminist by a mom who then became a homemaker. Like, of course we don't want the Meryl Streep role where we stay home and dress like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz and make cookies and who wants to do that? When my mom was sick, the book kaleidoscopically became about something else. How does it feel for you to be a lightning rod for readers like me who are like, let me tell you about my mom, you know, passing or like, let me tell you about abuse like in black and blue or, or shootings like in every last one. Do you get that sort of lightning rod focus? Look, I'm, I'm an inveterate reader. I, I started reading when I was five and I haven't stopped since. It's aside from my kids, it's my greatest joy in life. And one of the things that I think is so important about it and really important at this moment in time in this country is that reading makes us feel less alone and it makes us feel bigger than ourselves. Um, and so when someone says to me who has spent two or three years of her life alone in a little room in front of a computer thinking, does anyone care? When someone says to me, this went straight to my heart and lodged there, there's part of me that thinks, okay, score, I can go on and do this again, because it's really hard to do this. Um, I, I know there are writers who talk about how much they love it and how much pleasure they take in it. I am not one of them. I find it very, very, I find it very difficult. Um, I, I constantly find it um, an exercise in confidence. I'm constantly looking at the page thinking, this is no good, this is not as good as the last one, this is not as good as the book you just read. And so when a reader says, not only, you know, I, I liked your book, but your book pro produced deep feelings of connection in me, um, you know, who could ask for anything more than that? Yeah, nothing. I think that a book in many ways is like throwing filaments of yourself out across a void. And if they land on people, it, that's an amazing gift to get back. And if they land on people in a way that changes their lives in some way, every once in a while, rarely, but every once in a while, I'll hear that on that side of the signing table and go back to my hotel and think, I am not worthy of that level of ripple effect in somebody's life, but I'm so grateful for it. Um, and then I have like a big cheeseburger and a glass of red wine. <laughs> but I room service. I, I know, like pandemic be over. I need room service back. Like there are many things about the pandemic that as we were discussing before we got on the call, life has not changed that much for some writers because we live this way anyway. We don't have to wear pants we and you know, we wear the same, eat the same thing every day and we're stuck in our own heads. So what's, there's a pandemic, but room service, I do miss. Yeah. Um, I am like so shocked to hear that you find writing a difficulty because my impression of journalists and uh, career journalists in particular is I have great envy because I think you guys are not precious. Like I am, pre I am precious about my writing time in an obnoxious way that I can't seem to stop. Like, like first I have to cook everything in the house and clean everything in the house. And then maybe I can write a sentence and now I have a hangnail. So I have to write tomorrow. If you're a journalist, you know, you're used to yep. turning on your faucet, the words come out, but it's not easy. It's not easy for you. The, the thing that I took from being a reporter and I'm grateful for it every day. I, 
uh, first of all, I think I developed a, an ear for dialogue because mm -hmm. I spent the best years of my life writing down what people said verbatim in my notebook. You know, all of you out there, we really do write down exactly what people say. Actually, now they, a lot of people tape what real people say and we transcribe them verbatim. Um, the ear for dialogue, the eye for the telling detail, because when you have 700 words, you better come up with a couple of telling details or you got nothing laying there on the page. But more than anything else, the ability to put my butt in a chair and write. But that doesn't mean that you think you're being eloquent or that you think you're being, um, uh, you're, you're doing something beautiful. It means you know how to churn it out at the same time that you're thinking, I'm just churning this out. And, mm -hmm. and on the one hand, I think it's a great gift because I, I never have what's called writer's block. Uh, I mean, I have the ability to continue to write even as my lizard brain is saying, this is terrible. Um, and, you know, I think the thing is sometimes you start and you're thinking, this is terrible, this is terrible. And then suddenly you hit it and mm -hmm. it's not terrible anymore. And at the end of the day or the next morning, what you do is go back and knock out some of this stuff and then keep what turned out to be good. Mm -hmm. And that's such a good feeling when you're fighting and fighting for something that you know is might be terrible. It might just be workmanlike, but it's not quite right. But then right. after sort of chewing on that for many subsequent days, the idea comes to usually come to me in the shower. I'm like, oh, that's how to fix that thing. Um, and then that feels like such a hard one battle. It, it's very inspiring. How many drafts do you get a chance to do for your books? You're very prolific. I think to me, um, and also uh, I know that once you sort of get on that schedule and you're, and you're churning, churning out the butter every day, um, you might not have a lot of chance to do revisions. Do you get a lot of chances to do that? Do you even have to do a lot of revisions of your novels? I get as much time as I need to finish a novel. Um, but my process now usually is um, I finish a draft, all the way through. Um, at the end of my draft, one part of my process that is not, um, not changeable is that I read the entire thing aloud um, because my I will forgive things that my ear won't. Um, if I have a sentence that's too long or a sentence that doesn't have the meter it needs to have, if it has clunks in it, if I have a line of dialogue that doesn't sound like the way people talk, um, I hear that when I read it aloud in a way that it's never quite as clear to me when I'm just reading over the material. So um, I, it takes me about a week to do the read aloud. And then I hand the draft in to two people, um, my lifelong editor, I've only had one editor on my 21 books, Kate Medina of Random House, and my lifelong agent and really close friend, um, Binky Urban. And those are the only two people who get it. And, um, and then after about, uh, it's usually two weeks, um, I, I get the distinct impression that Bink talks to Kate and Kate says, I'm going to give her her notes tomorrow. So then Bink calls me and says, 
Oh, you know, depends on the book. Oh my God, this is fat, fabulous, but you know, it's going to need some work, right? Or something like that. And then the next day, Kate um, send, talks to me on the phone and then she sends me this thing because she still likes to edit on paper, which makes me insane. Um, she sends me about a 10 page single space memo that looks at the book in its entirety. She sends me about a 25 page single space memo that breaks it down by chapter and says things like, there's too much backstory here in chapter three. I think some of it could go in one, but most of it could be scattered throughout the first part of the book and so on and so forth. And then she also sends me the manuscript annotated. Um, and okay. it comes in a big FedEx envelope and um, I don't open it for about a week. Um, it's kind of the bad fairy at the christening. It sits on a chair in my office and I skirt it. And then after about a week, I open it and I read part of the cover letter and then I throw it down and um, sulk for two or three days. And then I read the rest of the cover letter and look through the annotated manuscript. And then I sulk for about two or three more days. And then usually on a Monday morning, I start to make about two thirds of the changes that she suggested. That's how it works. That's a, I love this process. Um, I imagine the manuscript sitting or the FedEx envelope glowing like the Ark in Raiders of the Lost Ark at the end in the warehouse, just sort of being like, wow, I'm here waiting for you. Um, I, have, do you I, have, I have one great advantage in this whole process, which is um, my second son is a YA novelist and he has exactly the same process and exactly the same attitude towards edits. And there was one absolutely magical month when both of us got our edits at the same time were like incredibly unpleasant for a week together spent a lot of time at meals talking about what idiots our editors are who by the way we love and depend upon highly and then both of us started doing our our edits at the same time and that that was like such a gift, I'll never forget it. Just to have company in that process of being curmudgeonly about edits is so great. A lot yeah. of the time, there's such a Ferris wheel with writing where you're in this one stage and everybody you know is in different stages. So you don't get to gripe about the wonderful problem of having a fantastic editor who sends you edits that are correct that you don't wanna hear. Because our work should be perfect right out of the gate always. Like that's the way it works in my mind. So have you, it sounds like you're the unicorn writer who I've not met yet, who has had a lifelong agent and a lifelong editor. Is that right? I, that's absolutely true. And I feel so blessed um, to have that. Um, first of all, because my agent is a close friend and has been for many years. And so she can be really straight with me. Um, we had a come to Jesus moment over last summer where I had started a novel and she read um, the first 15,000 pages, uh, 15,000 words and came back to me and said, uh, I don't like these people. I don't wanna spend an entire book with these people. I don't, and I mean, it was, at first it was completely destabilizing. And then I walked around with it for a day or two. And then I thought, 
maybe that's why it's felt like pushing a rock uphill when I've been working on this book. And the next day I started a completely different book in every way, tone, protagonist, point of view, the whole thing. And so I started this new book and after a week I called Bink and said, I have pages of this new book and I, I know you've never heard me say this before, but I'm having the time of my life working on it. And I sent it to her and she was like, I love this. I'll get a contract for this now. So, uh, I mean, it had to be somebody that I really trusted to go with that. And with my editor, Kate, at this point, she speaks fluent Quinlan. So there's things she knows not to ask me to change. And I have so absorbed her voice into my head that I used to do three drafts before I was done. And now it's usually two only because I'll be working on, I'll think, oh my God, this is such beaut this description, this is really good. And I hear Kate in my head saying, does this bring the action of the book to a stop? And I go, no, 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 this is, this is lovely. No, I'm at, and then I hear her say, really you've slowed down the action of the book and this doesn't serve the reader. And, and if I hear it enough, I go back and look at it and I pare it down, pare it down, pare it down. And then I say, no, it doesn't slow down the book. And then when I look at it, when I'm doing my read through, I think this really slows down the book and I kill it. You know, I mean, the whole point of this exercise is to kill your darlings you know, there's all these paragraphs that you think, oh, this was divine. It's gone. Do you ever save any of those? I know sometimes when I have a book that I love so much, I would do anything to give the characters, to see the characters doing anything after the book is closed, because I miss them so much. Like, I would love to see, like, Fran Benedetto, like, brushing her teeth or, you know, like, just it, anything. Or, like, the, the still life with breadcrumbs photographer, like, going back to her life in New York and I don't know, going to Zabar's um, or even dealing with COVID, you know? So do you ever save your outtakes anywhere? I, I mean, I save all my manuscripts. So I guess I have some of my outtakes. Um, what, I, what I did that I never expected to do and turned out to be really um, a good thing was I had a misfire of a, a novel between uh, one True Thing in Black and Blue. Um, it, was, it was a book that was good. We all really liked it. I couldn't revise it to make it better, I, no matter how I tried. And um, I, I put it aside and started on Black and Blue, which again was a book where the moment I started it, I, I knew I could do it. Um, and um, it became a kind of a chop, the, the abandoned novel became a kind of a chop shop for me. Um, where there were pieces of it that I would think when I was working on Blessings, oh, this is a great scene in Blessings. I mean, adapted and, and massaged and so on and so forth and, and, and for Miller's Valley. And so I kept circling back to certain things in it that I really liked and, and, and working with them so that they worked in other books. That's great. So it's like a repurposing like a repurposing box of ideas. Exactly. Yeah. I should go to my attic and look at my repurposing, but I have like a vast library of, of 
aborted manuscripts in my attic, which is now a fire hazard, but it's okay. Um, I was wondering this morning, because your career has been long and illustrious, what was the first thing you ever wrote? Do you remember what it was? I mean, I was probably six or seven. Um, wrote for money. Um, either I mean like wrote just that you remembered that you loved and then also the first thing that you sold and of course they have many questions about Binky Urban and Kate I mean it's just like they're the you know Batman and Robin of the literary world they're so yeah. legendary I love them, you, but, no, they're amazing <laughs> and most of the writers I know have like an agent they've been with forever which is my case I've been with my agent for 20 years we're like the old Muppet guys in the balcony by now but I've switched editors with every book um, but you have like your your duo internalized and externalized which is great but when you sold your first piece was it with Binky was it on your own no it was totally on my own um I'm I graduated from Barnard which has a spectacular creative writing program I mean our list is not to be believed uh, Edwidge Danticat um Jhumpa Lahiri Catherine Boo, Natalie Angier, Erica Jong I mean it just goes on and on and on and um uh, actually, um, my my uh, advisor in that department was Elizabeth Hardwick, uh, the literary critic. So, you know, whatever. And um, uh, our senior year in the program, which was quite small, um, a wonderful novelist named B.J. Shute um, told us all to buy a box of manila envelopes and a copy book. And she made us take our stories and send them out. And when they were returned to write down in the copy book where we'd sent them, what the date, what the date they were returned and send them out again. This was a completely revolutionary idea. All of us, we had all thought of ourselves as being writers. We had never thought of ourselves as selling writing. Um, and I actually sent a short story to Seventeen Magazine and got back a check for $350, um, which gave me the false impression that selling short stories to magazines was easy. Um, that was the first and last that I ever did. <laughs> but I will, I will never forget it. <laughs> Do you still have, it's so funny. I did not know that we had this in common, but my first short story was sold to 17 when I was like 14. And then I decided the world owed me a living as a writer only to find out that the world owed me a living in food service when I graduated <laughs> with my degree in, in English. And that's actually what I did for like 10 years, but that is amazing. So after school, did you jump right into the stream of professional writing or were you out pounding the pavement? When did you get your agent? I, I know so many of our audiences are aspiring writers and they love to hear how the sausage is made in terms of the, the career stuff, so. Um, I became a copy girl when I was 18 at my local daily where I learned an incredible amount. Everybody there was so generous and nice to me and I, didn't know, I had no clue. Um, and um, as a result of that job, and then the following year when I was city desk clerk at the same paper, I wound up with a lot of clippings. Um, and um, I babysat when I was in college in New York City um, for the kids of um, two journalists, um, Larry and Lindsay Van Gelder, um, who had Sarah and Miranda. And, um, 
Clyde and Nancy Haberman, who had Maggie Haberman and Zach Haberman. So my claim to fame now is that I was Maggie Haberman's babysitter. And all the things that make her one of the best political reporters in America made her a very challenging baby. <laughs> um, um, but that got me a summer job at the New York Post um, in between my junior and senior years in college. And I went to work at the Post. Um, I graduated on um, a Thursday and went to work at the Post full-time on a Monday. Uh, so I was in the newspaper business, um, you know, through part of college. And, and then when I got out. And um, Binky was um, an assistant to Clay Felker, who was the editor of New York Magazine. And he and she became what's called a baby agent. And when she was a baby agent, she took me out to lunch and said, I wanna represent you. And I said, I have nothing to sell. And she said, I'm a patient woman, um, which is not true. She is not a patient woman, which is why she's a great agent. But she signed me up um, when I had nothing and she was just starting out in the business. And she brought me to Kate. It's so fun. Do you remember that first lunch? Do you remember like what you ate and where you were? I, I remember this with my agent like so vividly, my first meeting with her. I think... Um, Bink and I went to a Japanese place, if I remember correctly. And I wasn't the least little bit intimidated as people are by her now because she sort of hadn't become that thing that, that she was on the road to becoming, that mega agent that she was on the road to becoming. Mm -hmm. um, and we just sort of, I, I had already known her husband, Ken Aletta, um, the nonfiction writer um through newspaper circles and so we very quickly became friends which has been such a blessing for me did you feel when you were working in journalism did you ever feel intimidated at that point or was it just something that you loved to do so you just jumped right in i mean i loved being a street reporter um it was probably the best job i'll ever have in many ways um, the times can be really intimidating, all that first rough draft of history stuff. Uh, but I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about that. I actually worked at the New York Post through a Friday and went to the Times on a Monday. And um, it was very irritating that I was the same person with the same capabilities. And yet the people who wouldn't return my calls one week would suddenly return my calls the next. And, and I kind of hated that. And it, it sort of pushed back against the intimidation factor in my mind and helped me not genuflect too much to the great gray lady, which by the way, I have the utmost respect and love for and always will. And I'm so glad, I was wondering if I was even allowed to ask you about the stage of journalism, but as the daughter of a newsman, so many of my friends are, are reporters at the Globe, at the Times, at the Post, um, it makes me mad to even hear the phrase fake news because there's news and then there's not news. So I'm wondering if, you know, looking at this, at this with perspective of like great pride of having worked in this industry for ages, what is your feeling now about whether or not there's hope for news to come back? We're in such a weird era where facts are negotiable, which is not really a thing. <clears throat> I, I actually don't think news um, 
there's any question about news coming back because I think during the pandemic, more and more um, smart people have turned towards a variety of news sources. Um, I've said more than once, I think it's possible to be better informed today than at any time in American history. You just have to be your own aggregator. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't just rely on the New York Times, much as I love it, much as I respect it. I read the Times, I read the Washington Post, I listen to the BBC, um, uh, various television outlets. Uh, I mean, the internet has a powerful downside, but one of its upsides is that we can all be citizens of the world in terms of what we know and understand. And I think that's invaluable. Having said that, I think the legacy media in this country, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and I have to add NPR, they have been doing such great work since, um, the, since election night of 2016. Um, we have a lot to answer for in terms of how we covered that race, um, but once it was over, um, I, I think they're doing, they're doing a bang up job and I'm very, very proud to have been um, part of that clan. That is very reassuring. I think also just having the amount of transparency we do with social media is helpful in some ways and also confusing for readers in other ways because there's such a tower of Babel effect about who to look for. So I keep pointing people toward what you would have read in childhood. You know, like go to the Times, go to the Post, go to the LA Times, go to the Chicago Tribune, go to, you know, I watch the nightly news every night from every channel, um, every network and aggregate them together to get my news and then BBC. So yay news. Um, somebody wants to know from our viewing audience, we talk about this a little bit in terms of what you borrow from nonfiction to fiction. And one of them is your amazing ear for dialogue and the other is the telling detail. How is it different for you to go from reportage to writing fiction? Is there a relief in going to fiction or does it feel corseting in a different way? Uh, for me, it's, it's more difficult um, to work in a fictional universe um, because when I'm writing nonfiction, when I'm working on a memoir, for example, or, or Nanaville, which is about being a grandmother, um, when I get stuck, I always have anecdote to fall back on. I always have what really happened. Um, and even sometimes data and research and the rest. Um, when I'm working on a novel, all the stuff that's normally in my notebook has to be in my imaginary notebook. And, and that's harder. It's why when I'm working on nonfiction, I can go longer than when I'm working on fiction. When I'm working on a novel, it, it's not that I can't write for four or five hours. It's that my imagination starts to dull after two or so. And when my imagination starts to dull, nothing good ever follows. So I, you know, I, I, I have a real short window of opportunity, um, which turns out to work fine out here because um, I usually write um, uh, right before Ivy's nap and um, <laughs> after I've hung out with Arthur, um, on the front porch for a while. So it's it's very grandchild specific. That's great. So I, I was reading about Nanaville today. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, 
I'm looking forward to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about Nanaville? This is your newest collection. Um, I know that the great lead into this was that Arthur would sometimes run at you and say Nana in the same way that somebody else might say ice cream or like new shoes or something. It's a great feeling. Um, but tell us what your favorite thing was about writing Nanaville. I'm just thinking about all the things that's happened since I locked this book. <laughs> we were watching a neighbor's fireworks on 4th of July out by the barn and Arthur put my sandals on and he went, I'm Nana. I'm so old. And we all started laughing so hard. I mean, you know, I had this grandchild and it was everything people tell you it's going to be. And my agent, Binky, came out here for lunch as she does in the summer. And Quinn and Lynn had moved out here with Arthur when he was eight weeks old. And so we were all having lunch together and Arthur was in the boppy or something and, and they went over to take him for his nap and Bink turned to me and said, I can get you a contract for this book in an hour. And I, and I said, oh my God, I can't do that. I plumbed my kids' lives for the life in the thirties column. It's their material now, that would be wrong. And Quinn and Lynn came back over after Binky had left and I said, guess what Bink thinks I should do a book about? And both of them said, oh, that would be great. That would be great as long as you let us look at it before, you know, it's set in print. And of course, I wouldn't have written a book like this without letting them look at it because, you know, books come and go, but your kids are forever. And, um, and so, um, you know, I had all this material from when Arthur was a baby and, and then a toddler. And at the end of the book, Quinn and Lynn are expecting another baby who is now a year and a half old named Ivy. Um, and I, I think the thing that I found most gratifying when I was done with it and they read it was that they kept saying, oh, I forgot that. Oh, I forgot that. And so along with having been a book for people who are interested in this subject, it's a kind of a memory piece for them. And who could ask for more? I was wondering while you were talking if it was like the literary equivalent of the baby albums that we used to have that would have baby's first handprint or baby's first shoe or a curl of hair. The memories of your grandchildren and their children are preserved so beautifully, right, forever. Exactly, although in the same way, um, I, I did a column for the New York Times called Life in the 30s. Um, in which my boys who were very little then made a constant appearance. And when she got old enough to look at Living Out Loud, which is a collection of those stories, Maria, my third child, became very irate about the fact that she was not in there. And I told her it was because she hadn't been born yet. And that almost made it worse. The idea that we all had had a life before she existed. And so I keep thinking about the fact that someday Ivy will look at this and say, hey, I'm nothing more than a positive pregnancy test. Right. So I guess you just have to keep writing. And I guess. Maybe <laughs> do you have a, another project in mind that you're willing to disclose or do you keep everything under wraps while you're working on it? Uh, I'm pretty far into a new novel. Um, I hope to be done a draft by the end of the year and then work on a, 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 a 
on the revisions that Kate suggests, but I've been, I've been tootling right along with it and I'm, I'm pretty happy with where it's wound up. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to hear another novel. Do you have the sort of a feeling one way or the other about the collections and the columns and the memoirs versus the novels? Or do you have a fondness more for one than the other? And that's probably an obnoxious question, but. No, I, I, I actually have worked very hard to have readers see me as a novelist. And that was a real progression. I mean, when I did the first novel, there was a sense of, oh, the, here was this opinion columnist who was taking a flyer at fiction. And little by little, I sort of had to move the needle on that. And it's one reason why, despite the fact that some wonderful people have asked me to do so, I haven't written any op-ed pieces. Um, I was supposed to do one um, the morning after the November election in 2016 as a feminist who had spent her whole life waiting for a woman president. And I wrote it, but unfortunately, it was not something that we could run. Um, and and <laughs> so I, um, I, I, you know, I've tried to stay away from that. Um, and from time to time, I have ventured back into nonfiction with this and with lots of candles, plenty of cake. But um, I think of myself now predominantly as a fiction writer. And I, as a fiction person who's always written fiction, because I just don't have the patience to stick to the facts, really, um, I read mostly fiction, so I know you mostly as a novelist, although I've read the columns and the essays and the memoirs, so I'm, I revere the novels, I think they're so wonderful. Do you have a favorite novel among your novels? No, of course not. I mean, if it's not your most recent one, then you're doing something wrong. Um, but um, I think I think the ability to do good with a novel is monumental and humbling. And um, to the extent that people see Black and Blue as a book that did that, um, it's really gratifying for me. So I wouldn't call it my favorite, but I would say, you know, when I was lucky enough to have Oprah choose it as a book club selection, we um, filmed a lunch where we sat um, at a table at a shelter with a group of women who had been um, abused by their um, husbands and partners. And one woman said, I called 911 with this book in my hand. And I thought, if I walk out of this room and get hit by a bus, I will have fulfilled some purpose in my life. I mean, it was just so powerful and so overwhelming to hear that. And so something like that just sort of makes you think, okay, I can keep on doing this um, in, a, in the quest for that kind of connection with another human being. There really is no better gift than that. And we're so grateful that you have given us these points of connection in our lives to people who aren't like us and people who also are um, and, and created that connect connective experience between what you're writing and all of us adoring readers. We're almost out of time. I know that Tom, our producer has been like, hello, it's now like 45 minutes or 12 <laughs> five minutes and I'm like but we're just getting started in our slumber party I have two, I have like three sort of fame questions to fire at you in a lightning round just because I think you know when you drop these things into a conversation readers are like what she let that go without even those mentioning those things so one is Oprah 
Pulitzer movies, go. What was each one of those things like? The Oprah call, um, winning the Pulitzer, and seeing the book made into movie. Oprah call, babysitter said, some woman called and said she was Oprah, but I knew she couldn't be Oprah, and I told her you weren't home. That's absolutely true. Um, Pulitzer, best moment of the Pulitzer was when I called my dad and um, his wife said, he's not here, he's driving around in his truck because every 20 minutes news radio says that you won the Pulitzer. That, and sorry, what was the third one? I don't even know that anything is going to top that dad in the truck I anecdote. Said, I mean, really, really, that was the high point of winning the Pulitzer. That and the fact that it turned out my daughter, who was four, thought went to school the next day to nursery and told everyone I had won something called the Pulla Surprise. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> Which is entirely true, right? Because it is always a little bit of a surprise. Um, Elizabeth Berg, who I know is watching this too, talked about um, hey, how. When, I know she's like Elizabeth is like my new guardian angel. Like she's always watching these interviews, um, which is so phenomenal. I, I am so honored and so humbled and lucky. Um, but she talked about one of her favorite moments as a writer being when she could buy her dad a car that he really wanted. Like he really wanted this specific kind of car. Elizabeth, forgive me. I think it was like a Buick, but I might be making that up. But like she finally, when she was, you know, at the sort of more recent end of her career bought him this car and he polished it every single day. And that was her favorite thing about writing and the writing life. So the last question was about seeing your work made into film and what that was like. What was that process like? Um, I kept thinking that it must be like what they used to say about astronaut food, where you just added water and it became, I mean, you know, to some extent, the written word is two-dimensional. It's there on the page. And to walk into a house and see it completely constituted as Kate Golden's house um, was mind-boggling. It really was. I mean, to, to have it be real. And, and the other thing that was, you know, just wonderful for me is it's a wonderful movie. It's a wonderful movie. People will say to me, well, you know, don't you think the book is better? I think it's a terrific movie. And I just was so gratified at how even when they made changes, because if you sell your book to the movies, they will have to make changes because it's a different art form. Um, even when they made changes, they were so true to the spirit of um, the piece that that was just fantastic. Yes, I'm so glad because sometimes the book gets made into a movie and it's not reconstituted in the in the same way. So it becomes like Frankenbook. But I love one true thing. That's what we're talking about, audience. If you haven't seen it yet, it's Renee Zellweger as the daughter, Meryl Streep as the mom. Of course, it's Meryl, so she's fantastic, but they both are. And William Hurt is the dad, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking about that this morning as well. I've watched that movie many, many times, read the book many times. The writing life gives a lot of 
gifts as humbling as it is, I think. And I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you letting me ask you all these nosy questions about some of the gifts that people don't normally see, like receiving reader accolade um, and what that feels like. And then the, the big visible things that we do see and that we love you for the, the Oprah pick and the Pulitzer and the movies and, and also sharing your grandkids with us and your, your time. Um, so Anna, I will ask you one last question. If there's anything you want readers to take from your books, what would it be? Um, I wouldn't say this just about my books. I would say it at all about all books. Um, we're at a moment in this country where connection is perilous. Um, and people are finding it very difficult to cross lines of party and region and gender and race and ethnicity. And one of the ways to do that is to read, is to read about people who are different than you are and understand that they're not different than you are. That when you read The Bluest Eye, you're reading about a little girl who is just like you in many ways and then beginning to understand what it's like to be black in America. Um, so I just would urge everyone just to read, to read, to read, to read, um, and try to make those connections um, that are fraying every day in this country. Thank you, that is beautiful. So everybody watching is a big reader. Everybody buy all of Anna's books. Please buy them from Bookshop, if you will, um, because that helps keep indie bookstores alive. Um, but we, we all love you so much. And we're so grateful again that you spent your time with us this afternoon. And thank you, Anna. I could talk to you for another 12 days, but you probably have some grandkids you want to go hang out with. And <laughs> I Aiden, you, have make dinner. you have to make dinner, so you better get. Um, but thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. It was really a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I'm Trisha Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. Please join us for our next episode featuring author Edwige Dantica. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning.